Hello class. Welcome to True Crime University. This is your professor Debbie. How's everybody today? What's going on here? It's hot. It's the middle of the afternoon. It's a Sunday. I want to hurry up and get this case out of the way. It's, um, it's a big one. There's a lot of information and I don't know how many episodes it's going to be. I have my second dose of my COVID shot tomorrow afternoon and the first one knocked me on my ass for two days so i'm expecting to be out of commission for four days this time and please don't take that as a reason not to get a shot um, i'm glad i can have the shot i want to be vaccinated i'm everybody knows how i complain about hurting and everything all the time i have fibromyalgia and arthritis so things affect me more than regular healthy people so don't let me whining you know scare you um there are some trigger warnings for this episode it is a child murder and it's also a child murder by a child so i guess you could call that a double trigger this case is was actually requested so that's why i'm doing it now i know i literally just did a child murder last time but i was on facebook on one of my many I don't even know what it was, something about true crime, and somebody mentioned this case, and I never heard of it, honestly, so I, of course, googled it, and I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting, and I, I told the person, you know, I will cover it on my, on my podcast, and I'm like that. If you suggest a case to me, or even if, um, you say, well, you know, I'd like something in my state or my country or something. Depending on my schedule on how much information I can find on it, I've had some requests so far, and chances are I, I will get you right, right in. Then it, it later occurred to me, I was talking to my mom about this case, and I'm like, you know what? I did two child murders in a row, and I mean, I didn't even think of it, but I guess I'm strange and that uh, I can talk about that. It doesn't bother me, but I, I think that some people it does. I know there are certain podcasts that, that won't even talk about child murders because it bothers the host. And I'm thinking that the hosts have kids or their audience, you know, like maybe they're more of a comedy podcast, which I'm not. I mean, you can laugh if you want, but I'm not, do not build myself as a comedy podcast. I know a lot of people, like if they're going through lists of a podcast and they want to listen to something, they're like, no, that's about it. a child murder. I don't want to hear that. I didn't even realize that I did two in a row. And I made a, in my notebook, which is getting really long, I have all kinds of cases that I plan to cover. I have them, I have them by like category. I have serial killers and my favorite, which is multiple perpetrator homicides, because that was my dissertation, you know, as I mentioned a million times. I've got like, you know, killer moms and mass murderers and various topics or like, etc. The, you know, haunted or the supernatural or mysterious, whatever you want to call it stuff. I have like all kinds of different categories. So what I tried to do is kind of mix them up. I made a temporary schedule for the next month and I have like, you know, this one, this one, this one. Like I don't want to do two serial killers in a row. I don't want to do two child murders in a row or two killer mums in a row or, you know, like I, I want variety. And there are some because I'm 
I guess, older. It's funny, like, you young'uns today, you can have this newfangled thing called the internet. That's a joke. Um, I use it too. But I am really into good old-fashioned books. I have a ton of them. And now that I'm a podcaster, it gives me a good excuse to buy new ones about crimes. About crimes that I'm going to cover, or about crime in general, about psychology. I literally just ordered a copy of the DSM-5, and I'm going to talk about that later in the, the uh, lesson. But um, I have the perfect, perfect excuse now to do things like that because I need them for research, right? And for some cases, like the Paula Sims one, I reread an old book that I read before. And if I have to read a book for a case, it's like I'll, I'll take notes while I'm reading it. So I give myself more time if there's a, a book involved with a case. There was with this one, I'll tell you about it. And I'll put it in my show notes so that you could read it if you want. And I do recommend it. It's an excellent book. And, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and tell you what it is. It's called How Now Butterfly. And it's by Charity Lee, who is the mother of both the victim and the killer in this case. And there's also a documentary about this case. And it's called The Family I Had. And I could not find it. It supposedly was on Amazon Prime. Supposedly it was on that IMDB channel. I think that's what it's called. I just couldn't find it. But anyway, supposedly it's out there somewhere. Everybody says it's good. And I told you about the trigger warning. This case, the more I got into it, the more fa fascinated I became because it's a lot like, remember Nika Jenkins, how his whole, his whole family was criminals? This is another one of those cases where we're going to see a couple different criminals in the same family and a toxic family dynamic. And I like to pick cases that I can use to teach certain points. Like, if I was a real professor and Yins were real students, this case will be perfect to talk about a number of things that have to do with crime and psychology. And specifically, we're going to talk a lot about psychopaths. And I know everybody thinks they know what those are, and I'm betting that you really don't know the whole story behind them. I, I bet I'm going to give you some new information. There's something that you didn't know about them. That stuff. I mean, I learned stuff that I didn't know, so not that I know everything, but some things that I did not know about psychopaths and sociopaths, some myths that we have about them that um, hopefully I'll debunk. So here's my disclaimer. All of the information I present is available to the public, and any sound clips are from news or court, which are also public. The purpose of this podcast is for information and education. I mean no disrespect to anybody, especially victims or their families. I in no way intend to glorify criminals. And I talk about psychology, but I can't diagnose anybody. I have no credentials, so therefore when I pretend to diagnose people. It's just speculation. Okay, we're going to talk about the murder of Ella Bennett by her brother, Paris, and I'm not going to start with the murder. I'm going to start at the beginning, like I like to do. I told you this is what you would call a toxic family, and in this case, the family dynamic is integral 
to understanding the family and how this came about and a lot of things, okay? Now, the matriarch of this family, and that would be the grandmother of the victim and the perpetrator, her name is Kyla Clore. She was married about seven or eight times, and when I say about seven or eight, I mean that because she herself said that she lost count. She supposedly had alcohol and drug problems, and she is supposedly a psychopath, and we're going to see some instances later on where I definitely agree with that. Now, she had her daughter, Charity, on October 27th of 1973, and Charity's dad was named Robert or Bobby Bennett, and Charity was real young when her mom and dad divorced, so she didn't really ever know him very well. But Bobby was Kyla's third husband, and Kyla was Bobby's fifth wife. So you would literally need a scorecard to keep track of how many times all of these people were married. So in the end, it doesn't matter. Okay, Charity said that she had a, quote, normal childhood for, you know, the, the earlier part of her childhood. She lived in Georgia. She grew up rich. They lived on a ranch. They went to a country club. They went to the best private schools. She even went to finishing school. I don't even know what that is. I don't know what you finish. Manners. Or, I don't know about stuff like that. I was kind of poor. So her parents were divorced. In 1980, they went to Vegas and got remarried because it's the kind of thing you do in Vegas. They were literally married for 57 hours when, on the morning of March 11th of 1980, Charity's mom woke her up. She took her to school, and Charity said she knew something was, like, wrong or weird or, you know, because her mom never took her to school. And her mom was like, okay, you're going to North Carolina to stay with your grandparents for a while. She was like, what? Later, she learned that her dad had been murdered. He was found in the foyer. I guess rich people have foyers. In his own home, shot four times with a 38 caliber revolver. And it was said to look like an execution. He was 36 at the time. And they owned a trucking company. His wife, Kyla, said that he was a criminal. And we don't know if this is true or not. She claimed that his trucking company was the front for chop shops and drug dealing. She said that he was a high roller and had underworld connections, and he had a lot of mistresses and enemies. Like I said, whether or not this is true, there's no way to know. So, a month after his murder, Kyla and a part-time driver of their trucking company named Clarence Phillips were indicted as conspirators in the murder, and they thought that the gunman was somebody else. He was never named. I'm assuming that he was never charged or convicted because there's literally, I mean, not that I found anyway, there's just nothing about him. So she spent six weeks on jail, and her trial was in the summer of 1980, and supposedly she cried several times during this trial, but it was said to be like crocodile tears or psychopaths have these like tears that they're, I don't know how you tell the difference, but they're like not real or you know what I'm saying? Like not emotional or they're fake. Um, 
Bobby, and I, I can't wrap my mind around this, He, his fiance, so I don't know how he could be married, but also have a fiance. Like I said, this case is very convoluted. She testified that they had a violent quarrel the day before his murder, but he supposedly would, would have been married to Kyla then. And I'll just take the the judge in this case, and I gotta agree with him. He said that this was the most bizarre case in his memory, and it, it's it's just a mess. So Kyla was described, I guess, by the people who testified as an efficient bus businesswoman who pretty much kept this trucking business together. And I, I got a real kick out of this line and. Um, I don't think you young ones will understand this, but I guess I'll have to explain it. They said Bobby was like Charlie of Charlie's Angels. You never really saw him. You just heard his voice on the phone. And Charlie's Angels was, was actually one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. It was like in the 70s and 80s. It was one of those cop shows. And there were three angels. They were like private detectives. And Charlie was their boss. And you literally never saw him. They would get together in the office and the dude his name was Bosley he would put him on speakerphone he'd be like hello angels you know here's your assignment blah 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 and the big running joke on the show was like you never knew what Charlie looked like or, or who you know never saw him in person so I found that funny but anyway that's what they said about him so on July 8th of 1980 Kyla was found not guilty she was 29 years old Kyla said that Charity was good till she was about 12, and then she became manipulative. And she says in the documentary that they were all manipulative. Her, Charity, Paris, and even Ella, who's the little girl, who's the victim. And she said, now I, I did not see the documentary in whole, but I saw this little clip of it. It's probably like the most famous clip. She's sitting there talking to the camera, and she said something like, you know, I'm, I've always been manipulative, but now I don't have anybody to manipulate. I don't have a husband or kids. And she goes, and I, I don't have a jury to manipulate. And she says it with like this smug, self-satisfied kind of a smirk. And it's like, hey, can you say psychopath? <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure again's get the gist of that. So Charity said in third grade she went to a new school and on the first day of school you know how you're nervous on the first day of school and she was kind of a shy kid and she saw a group of girls at a table and she went over and she said can I sit here and one of the one little bitch goes you can't sit with us your mother murdered your father and Charity was like what? So she went home and she told her mom about, you know, what these rotten little girls had said. She's like, is this true? And her mom said, that's none of your business. We will never discuss this. Kind of a strange, I mean, you'd think that the appropriate response would be like, oh my god, I, I most certainly did not kill your father, or I don't know, I've never been in that situation, but well, I just thought it was an odd response. So they never talked about Charity's dad. She said she always heard bad stuff about him, you know, he was into drugs, and he was a criminal, and he cheated, and, you know, he, and this and that, and I don't think that's too unusual, because my own parents were divorced, and when I was a baby, and my mom always said, oh, your dad, blah, 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 and this and that, and 
I think a little bit of that is natural. Not good. Of course, it's not, it's not nice. You shouldn't do that. But when Charity was about 13, she said her grandmother gave her a scrapbook of newspaper clippings of her mother's child. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure she found that interesting. She always thought that her mom hated her or resented her. And she thought maybe it was because she looked like her dad and, like, symbolized him. And this is just sad. She just wanted her mother's love and approval. Like, she was always trying to get her attention. And her mother would say, Oh, she's just upset because, you know, I had a life too. And, well, no. Charity was very smart. She was an honor student. She graduated, she skipped a grade and graduated at age 16. But sadly, she, about maybe age 15 or 16, she became addicted to heroin. She said at one point she weighed 80 pounds. And she said to her mother, um, help me, like put me in a rehab or something. So her mother said, no, you're just going through a phase. Like, what the fuck? Seriously? You're addicted to heroin, and it's just a phase? So, she finally went to, she was 16, remember? She went to an adult treatment center three states away because her mother didn't want anybody in the area to know, you know, who she was and that she was an addict. So, at one point, her mother gave her $100 and said, here, do whatever you want with this. You can go to treatment, or you can buy enough heroin to kill yourself. I mean, what the thing to tell your kid. My God, this woman is not going to be mother of the year. So Charity said she attended the University of Tennessee for a little bit and she told herself, if I'm not happy, I'm going to give myself three months. If I'm not happy within three months, then I will kill myself. I'll, I'll OD and I'll kill myself. So two weeks after this, she just has this feeling that she's pregnant. So she was 18 at this time and she found out that she was pregnant and this would be Paris. And she said immediately she felt a great deal of love for her unborn baby. And she said that she was determined to do whatever it took to have him, you know, give birth and raise him successfully. And she said she made a promise that her kid would not be treated as she was by her own mother, which would be shitty. So Paris was born on October 10th of 1993. Charity said, I will never forget the first time I saw Paris. He saved my life. He taught me everything I knew about love. Paris was never around his dad. Charity left him while she was still pregnant. And two years later, he was found wandering around the streets. And he would be eventually diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. He had audio and visual hallucinations. So Paris, you could tell from a very young age that he was smart. He was always very artistic. He started drawing, drawing when he was three. And his drawings were very good and talented, but, and I've never seen any of them. I wish that I did, because I'm curious. They were said to be, like, dark or maybe, like, demented, if, if you get my drift. His teacher said that he was, like, the smartest kid they had ever taught. And at one point, he was given an IQ test, and his IQ was said to be 141, which is genius level, in case you don't know that. 140 and over is con considered genius. I went to 
address this for a minute. Any podcast or documentary or anything I've read about Paris brings up his IQ. And, you know, I, I always like to relate myself if I can in some way. And I really relate to this because my IQ is a little bit higher than his. And I found out when I was a kid what it was. And I always felt like it was tattooed on my forehead. And it, it was kind of used as a weapon. Like, you know, your IQ is blah, blah, blah. And your grades are blah, blah, blah. Like, you know. And it was like a double-edged sword. I don't know how it was with Paris. Um, like I said, I don't know how old he was when his IQ was tested. I don't know if he was a kid or if when it was when he was in prison. So I don't know if he ever had the negative, I guess, experiencing the bad parts of being a genius. It's like so much expectations that I think are unrealistic are put on and I, I don't just mean me, but kids in general. It's like, oh, you're a genius. You're going to grow up to be a, you know, surgeon or a lawyer or president. Or And what if your kid wants to be a, a, a dancer or cut hair or something? I mean, that's it. just, I have a very strong personal opinions about that. But obviously, I think that to identify people by their IQ is just not a good idea. And... In this particular case, it had absolutely nothing to do with the crime. It it is just he just happens to be a genius. That's all. It's totally a coincidence that he is. There's like this. I don't know if it's a stereotype or on movies and TV and in books. You like you read about these mastermind criminals like Hannibal Lecter, and those are movies. That is not real life. One percent of the population has an IQ of over 140 and a lot high, I don't know what the but the exact percentage is but the percentage of people in society who are criminals is much higher so there's really no correlation between intelligence and crime okay there's just absolutely none so that's lesson number one no correlation between crime and intelligence so charity would say that Paris was always a good kid or so she thought and you know how you think somebody is good or you think somebody is a certain way and then something happened and it makes you look back on stuff like, okay, did I miss anything? Were there any signs? Well, that's obviously what she did after he killed his sister. She, of course, many times looked back and she's like, what did I miss? And there were some things that she said now in hindsight, and you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? that going back and looking on were red flags. And I guess he had this habit of banging his head against the wall until it bled. I have no idea why. Um, probably the me, that this is a very scary incident. He was three years old and they were at his grandmother's ranch and there was a, a porch. And um, Charity said that he was standing on the porch and he had this bucket he would reach into the bucket and he kept dropping something like a 30-foot drop. Just pretty significant. And she looked in the bucket and there's a bunch of frogs, little frogs, you know, in there. She's like, what are you doing? You're dropping the frogs off the porch. And, of course, they're they're dead because 30 feet, you know. And he's like, well, I like this, the sound they make when they splatter down below. Okay. And we're going to 
discuss that later in psychology. There's another incident, but I'll, that comes a little bit later. I'll tell you about that. Charity briefly lived in Alabama, and she met Ella's dad. His name was Jonathan Smith. And when Paris was eight, she became pregnant with Ella. And it wasn't working out with Jonathan. He turned out to be a, a binge alcoholic. So they got divorced before Ella was born. So Paris was supposedly upset that his mother was pregnant. He didn't want to talk about his new coming baby. I don't know if she knew it was a girl or not. Didn't want to discuss it. She would say, do you want to fill my belly? You know, like you do. Nope, nope. And she said she was disappointed. She wished he would have been more eager to be a big brother. But she's like, well, I guess some kind of jealousy is normal. And I would say that it probably is, you know, sibling rivalry. Some degree of it is is totally normal. She said she had Ella on April 12th of 2002. She gave birth at home with a midwife. And as soon as Ella came out, she said, Paris, come meet your little sister. And she handed her to him. And he said, Mom, she's beautiful. And she said he instantly fell in love with Ella. And he loved being a big brother. He was very protective of her. He loved to play with her, and they were like best friends. There's a lot of films. I've seen like little film clips of them playing, and they're really cute. They're dancing, and they're in this like ball pit thing. I guess you would call it that. And supposedly he would pick out her clothes, and Ella called him her fashion designer. She followed him all around, and her mom said she was opposite of Paris. Like he was more kind of withdrawn and shy, and Ella was outgoing, and um, she described her as bossy and opinionated, and a diva. She liked to perform. She liked to sing. She wanted to be a singer when she grew up, and this is hilarious. Supposedly, when she came into a room, she would say, I'm Ella. Y'all can have fun now. To picture a little girl doing that is just hysterical, and she still... Charity is still in this mode of what went wrong, were there signs that, you know, she said she would look back at, like, movies or films of them playing, and she would see instances where maybe he was, like, too rough or aggressive with her, but then she would ask herself, and, I mean, I can totally see this thought process, is he being, like, a little psychopath, or is he just being, you know, how kids play rough, is it? And, you know, there's there's no way to really know. But there was a really disturbing incident that happened when Paris was 12. They were outside. It, it was him and Ella and another little girl, and they were playing. And somehow her toy got broke. I don't know what kind of toy it was. But Charity said she doesn't know if he broke it on purpose or it was just an accident and it got broke. So she put him in timeout, and she said, go sit on the couch. So he's sitting on the couch, and he goes and marches into the kitchen, gets a knife, and proceeds to go outside, and who knows what he planned to do with this knife. So Charity and her mom, Kyla, follow him and, like, tackle him and get the knife off him. So Charity's like, okay, this is bad. He needs some kind of help. 
So she checked him into the Red River Hospital psychiatric unit. He was there for a week. And I, everything I researched gave me a conflicting story. Half of the information said that after a week, she took him out, like didn't want him to be there anymore. And the other half said that they just kind of kicked him out the door after a week. And they didn't tell her anything as far as what's wrong with him. Does he have a, have a diagnosis? Is he dangerous? Like whatever. And it w it's very, I mean, I'm not saying that I don't believe her, but for them to not tell her anything is extremely bizarre. And I mean, that's just not right. You can't, I mean, with, with any kid that's under um, psychiatric treatment, and yes, I know this from experience, any I've ever gone to, they tell my mom, you know, what's wrong with me. But Sherry said that years later, she got his file from the hosp this hospital, and in it, it said that he was obsessed with shooting and killing people and that he had homicidal and suicidal ideations. Now, like I said, it's, it's just inconceivable to me that they would find this in this 12-year-old boy and not tell his mom. I, I just don't know. Oh, and by the way, I've the documentaries I've seen, like, you know, YouTube, I don't know what you call it, like true crime people on YouTube that do true crime you know what i'm talking about like like podcasters but you see them and there aren't too many podcasts yet that have covered this i don't think but people seem to want to blame charity for all kinds of stuff for uh i guess because her kid killed her other kid you know this is her fault and this is her fault and it really makes me mad because she's the victim here i mean her child killed her other child how do you think she feels? And, well, if you read her book, you'll know exactly how she feels. And it's pretty bad. It's horrible. And this is like a public service announcement. And um, I don't have, a, like, a Facebook group that people talk about my cases. Or I don't, I don't have, uh, like, a YouTube channel. People talk about it in the comments. If I did, I would say I don't want to hear anybody badmouth Charity or her decisions because... She's a victim, and we do not victim blame in the classroom. So that's enough of that. You know, people are like, oh, if it was my kid, I would blah, blah, blah. No, you don't. No, you don't know that. You can't say that. You can never know what you would do in any given situation, whether it's like a, a bad traumatic event like this or whether it's something good. Like people are like, oh, if I won the lottery, I would blah, blah, blah. Well, it's always easy to say, if this happened, what you would do. And you might think that right now. But if it comes down to a situation, like especially a traumatic situation, you never know how you will react or what you'll do. And um, to, to say that she blames herself, I mean, I, I, if your kid does something bad, or in this case, really bad, of course you're going to blame yourself. Of course you're going to say, you know, if only I had seen this... Or I should have seen this, I should have noticed that, I should have done this or that. And you can do that all you want. But, you know, she said that people say stupid stuff to her. Like, well, did you see any signs? And she's like, of course not. Of course I didn't know. Or it wouldn't have happened. Like, duh. People are like, can be very insensitive. And she says that, I don't know how old, how old he was in this incident, but... I guess she was in his bedroom one time, probably putting away clothes or something. Some, some like, mom thing. And she saw that he had her underwear. 
and she said to him um why do you have my underwear just perfectly good question he said that well he just wondered what it was like to be a girl or to be her and um i really have no comment on that because i have no idea if this is normal or healthy i got nothing okay so i'm just gonna not gonna talk about that because if i don't know something about something i'm not one of those people who will say something just to like make it look like i do know something because i hate people like that so we're gonna move on when paris was 10 i know i'm going a little bit out of order but bear with me because there's a lot of information here okay when he was 10 she started a business she was a concert promoter like uh, i don't know how to she worked with bands and the bands would play at nightclubs or like different venues i think you can picture you know arenas or i don't know whatever and i think you can probably see where this is going bands you know what musicians tend to do so when paris was 11 she ended up relapsing on cocaine and understandably he was really upset and like really really mad at her he felt betrayed he felt like he couldn't trust her and then he started quote acting out and, and i know you hear that term all the time you know oh she acts out or he acts out and it's like what does that really mean and in his case who knows i don't know but they moved back in with kyla for a while just so that charity can like get back on her feet so to speak and this here is what i would call a disaster waiting to happen because you've got this toxic family and now they're all under one roof for a while and that just doesn't sound like a good idea so she got clean didn't take her long to get clean and her and paris and ella ella's now four they moved to abilene texas okay we're gonna talk about the murder now and if you don't want to hear this come back in i don't know 10 or 15 minutes i just took a shower <laughs> there's a reason i'm telling you that actually i think i mentioned that that's when i do a lot of my best thinking and I, there's something about being wet and soapy that um enhances thought i guess but i've been thinking about how i'm going to tell about the murder because there are several different versions of it there's the first version which is what charity first knew the very night the first night that it happened and then over a period of time as in years she kept learning little details from the police and from paris she would go to visit him in the juvenile facility she would ask him she kept asking him of course you would why 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 you know i want to know why and he would let out little bits of information and like little carrots and he would drop certain bombs like oh by the way this happened you didn't know this or this like and you she said you could tell that he enjoyed upsetting her like seeing her pain as she reacted to this new bit of information like oh my god like just when you think your kid murdered your other kid like, just when you think it can't get any worse you learn that this happened also or this factor was involved and it just like continually rubbing salt in her wounds but what i decided for the sake of brevity and just to make everything simple because there are so many details here and like i said they come out over a period of time i'm just going to give you everything at once as it happened okay and 
keep in mind that the police didn't know all this at once. They had to, like, process things. You know, they have to do the crime scene, autopsy, so forth. They had to interview Paris, and this would be information that Paris himself would tell his mother or the police over time. So I'm just going to tell you all at once, okay? And this murder happened on a weekend, and it was the weekend of February 3rd to 4th, 2007. It was actually Super Bowl weekend, and Paris was 13. Ella was four. She would have been five in April, so she was almost five. The charity was working at a um, restaurant called Buffalo Wild Wings on Sunday night, and it was Super Bowl day. So, um, if you don't know, in America, that's like a holiday. Not to me, because I don't give a shit about the Super Bowl. I'm not common that way. I mean, I'm, hockey's all I care about, but for many people, that's like a, another holiday. So this place was packed because it's like a restaurant slash bar and she was busy and um, I mean, I God, I can only imagine working at a restaurant and all those people and you got to have a lot of patience for that type of thing. So she was probably tired and by the end of her shift, I imagine probably not in a real good mood and her kids were at home with a babysitter. But prior to that, for the whole weekend, we now know later, For whatever reason, Paris was being a real little turd. I think this was, the murder happened on a Sunday night. I think this happened on Saturday. He snuck out to go to a skateboard park. He was into skateboarding. And Ella told their mom, you know, Paris went to the skateboard park. So, okay, this is the beginning of the month, right? He gets, Paris gets an allowance every month. And she said she would give it all to him at the beginning of the month. She was trying to teach him how to budget, which I think is a really cool parenting idea. I don't even know how to budget. Apparently, at some point that weekend, he went to the mall with Ella and the babysitter, and he blew all his allowance money. And his mom, okay, said, "Mm, this is bullshit. Pick one or two of the things you bought that you really like, and we're going to take the other things back. So he's already pissed at her for weekend and she said before she left for work on that Sunday she hugged and kissed him and said I love you but he strangely for him didn't reciprocate didn't hug or kiss her back and say you know I love you too mom so that's okay first sign that something's off so she gets to work and the babysitter who's a 21 year old college student takes the kids out to a Chinese restaurant And Paris later said that while they were sitting there eating their Chinese food, that he was planning in his devious little head exactly what he was going to do when they got home. So this is premeditated. Okay, remember that. Premeditated. They came home and they watched the cartoon version of Alice in Wonderland. Then the babysitter put Ella into her bed. And Paris supposedly went into his bedroom and was doing homework. And the police found out later that he wasn't doing homework. What he did was he hacked into his mom's laptop and he spent... And the time I've seen that he spent doing this varies. I've seen an hour. I've seen several hours. That's kind of a big difference. It's like, we don't know how long. Okay. But... He was looking at porn and not just 
any kind of porn. But um, the DEA told Charity that it was porn that was so disturbing that she felt dirty telling Charity about it. Like, uh, and I, I later, I read Blondage s and I read that he was searching for snuff films. And remember, he's 13, okay? He, he shouldn't even know what S&M and Blondage and snuff films are. So apparently he's watching this shit. Then he convinced the babysitter to leave about maybe 9.30. And try as I might, and you know when I research, I research everything. I could not find out what he said to convince the babysitter to leave. The only thing that I can think of, and this is just pure speculation on my part, is that he might have said, Mom just called, and she's coming home early, and she said that you can go home. That's the only thing that, that makes sense. And as devious as he was, he could have easily come up with that. But regardless, the babysitter left. So he's now alone with Ella, who's sleeping. So, at about 11.42, 911 gets a call. And here's the call. I actually killed somebody. You think you killed somebody? No, I know I did. I feel so messed up. Is she breathing right now? No. And I was hallucinating. You were hallucinating? Yes, and I got my sister with a demon, and I killed her. I want you to start CPR, okay? What I want you to do is take her off the bed. And no, I know for a fact that she's dead because well, I... Do you want to go ahead and try? It might still help, okay? No, I, I don't think it'll help because... Come on, Paris, work with me. I know I stabbed her lots of times. Okay, Paris. Yes? Take her off the bed and put her on the floor. Okay, hold on. Please don't hang up. I'm not hanging up on you. I thought she was a demon. Okay. Okay, she's on the floor, but I can't stay here because she's all bloody and Paris, what I want you to do is I want you to put your hands on her chest, mm-hmm. okay? And I want you to push 30 times. I want you to count. Okay. All the way to 30, and then blow two breaths in her mouth, okay? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, that was the 911 call, and I don't think that was the entire thing. I think it was edited a little bit, but you pretty much get the gist of it. There are some things that aren't true that he tells the 911 operator. When Charity heard the call, she said, he is not really crying. I know, that's fake crime. So there's that. Notice he says, I accidentally stabbed my sister. And he, I don't, I don't know if he got the whole thing, but he said that he was sleeping with her or laying next to her, which is kind of weird. But um, in one version, I think he said he had a dream and woke up and looked at her. And in the other one, he just plain hallucinated. He supposedly looked over at her. And all of a sudden, she was a pumpkin-headed demon that was on fire. So he then proceeded to stab her. And before you give him too much credit for thinking of 
such an imaginative image as a pumpkin-headed demon on fire. It would come out later, uh, a skateboarding friend of his was deposed, and he said that Paris had mentioned months before this about reading a book that had, guess what, a pumpkin-headed demon that was on fire in this book. So, not only is it an unoriginal concept, but he had, it indicates that he had literally been planning this for months, which is very frightening. The 911 operator tells him to do CPR, and that's kind of a weird thing about 911 operators. Like, somebody could be dead for three days, maggots and flies and everything, and they'll be like, we'll do CPR. And it just it just seems that that's that way. So you hear him. He's like one, two, when, when, three, when, four, when, you know. And um, the police later determined when they came to the house that in order to do CPR, you have to take somebody out of the bed. You can't do it on a soft surface. He the operator told him put her on the floor and do the compressions. And he wasn't. He was just pretending. Because, I mean, he, he killed her. He obviously wants her dead. Why would he want to do CPR? But the operator doesn't know this. Um, they found her laying on the bed on her side. So they knew that the CPR thing was, was all pretense. So it would come out later, um, a long time later. I don't know if he first told the police or the police just figured it out or if he told his mom but he had been molesting Ella for quite some time and with this kid not too much of anything was a surprise so the police theorized that this murder had a sexual motive because he there was um semen found on the bed where her bed where she was and on her body. I don't know where on her body. And in his underwear. And I think you can connect the dots for that yourself. I don't think that you need me to do that. He admitted to, I don't know if it was the police or his therapist or somebody that he liked to, how am I going to put this, fondle her. And he said that one time they were taking a shower together and he tried to penetrate her. He said that at the time of the murder that he went into the kitchen. This is, remember, after he had gotten rid of the babysitter. Goes into the kitchen and gets a knife. So this was, again, premeditated. Goes into her room where she's sleeping. And he, I guess, starts to molest her. And he punched her, and at this point, obviously, she's awake. She's probably like, what the fuck are you doing to me? And then he tried to strangle her, but he said it was pretty hard. He didn't. It, it takes a lot to strangle somebody. You'd, you'd be surprised. And I guess he didn't realize uh, the amount of time and dedication and strength that it takes to strangle somebody to death. So then he proceeded to stab her 17 times with this knife. And he later said that the stabbing 
wasn't like a frenzied, like you would imagine, like stab, stab, stab. It was, uh, what's the word, torture, like shallow cuts and jabs with a knife, like in a way that you're more torturing somebody than like stabbing to kill. If you Can you picture what I'm talking about? And eventually he he said that he would put the knife in like and bring it out slowly so that he could enjoy the feeling of the stabbing motion. And I think that it was at this point that he um, climaxed. And he said at one point that he wanted her to be awake when he killed her so that she knew who was doing this to her. Now, this is just beyond. This is, keep in mind, this is a 13-year-old kid. I mean, that's just, for anybody to say that, that's mind-boggling. But keep in mind that this kid is 13, the victim is 4, and his sister. And it just makes everything a 100 times worse. And Charity doesn't find the, all these details out at once. They eventually, the detectives tell her, you know, about the porn. And they find, you know, this and this and this. And then he tells her, you know, oh, by the way, you know, I've been molesting her for a long time. And I think I, I told you that whenever he would drop a bombshell like this, of course, she gets upset, and she cries, and she's like, oh, my God. And he takes, like, a sadistic pleasure in seeing her react to his little news bits. So, of course, the police get to the house, and they go to Charity's work, which is this Buffalo Wild Wings place. And she said she remembers they came in. And they asked to talk to her privately, like, in the manager's office. So they go in, and she's like, you know, like, anybody would be like, what is going on? This can't be good. And they said, um, ma'am, we are sorry to tell you, but your daughter has been hurt. And she, of course, becomes hysterical, and she's like, well, take me to her. you got to take me to her, thinking she's in the hospital or something. And they're like, um, no, um, she's dead. And she said that she fainted and she came to. And her next thought was, of course, about her other child. And she's like, where's Paris? Is he okay? And they said, we have him. And she's like, well, okay, can I, can I see him? And they're like, well, uh, we hate to tell you this, but... Harris murdered Ella, and she would later say that everything just stopped making sense at this point, and I think that she probably thought, like, this was a nightmare. Like, did you ever get that sense of unreality, like you hear some bad news? Well, I don't think any of us have heard news quite that bad, but just some some piece of bad news, and you're like kind of stunned, kind of in shock, like, this must be a nightmare because this can't really be happening. Like, she was in that state, and she said that she was in that state for a long time. So, they go back to the residence, which is an crime, of course, and she's like, I want to see Ella. 
and she was in a black body bag. And they unzipped it, like, just her head so that she could see, you know, her head, which, of course, she's all bloody and everything. And she said that she said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I wasn't there to protect you. And she kissed her and, and she tasted the blood on her. And she just collapsed at that point. So she doesn't see Paris until the next day at the juvenile detention center. And in the meantime... Of course, he's interviewed by the police, and they said that he told three different stories in a six-hour period. And they they pretty much said to him, right off the bat, we don't believe your bullshit about the hallucination. And the officer who interviewed him is quoted as saying, at times during the interview process, Paris would appear as if he were attempting to cry. However, he did not appear to be sincere with these attempts. At no time did he have tears come to his eyes. Since he was 13 and a juvenile, of course, he was held in a juvenile detention facility until he would be have a, a hearing. And he was not very well behaved in the facility. He punched another boy in the face several times. He did something that prisoners like to do often, just, just to cause trouble. They flood their cells, like they stop up their toilet or sink and run water or, you know, just to be obnoxious. So he did that. And then when the staff came in to see to the problem, he lunged at them. And they said that he, whenever he talked about the murder, he would get this smirk. And he hacked into the computer system so that he could correspond with literary journals in New York City. Now, Charity went to see him about a day after the murder, and she said so she goes into the room, and he's in a plastic chair all the way in a corner, and he had this totally different appearance. He didn't even look like her son, and she was, like, um, asking him, of course, the obvious questions, like, what is wrong with you? Why did you kill your sister? You know, the things that you would ask, and he just didn't want to talk. He was just real quiet and unemotional like cold and she's like oh my god who who is this person this is not the son that i know like what is wrong with him so over time she would go to see him every once in a while of course and these are i'm not going to like tell you all their conversations but just the highlights because these are very insightful one time she confronted him and she said, you killed her on purpose. And he said, you're right. I did kill her. And she said he got this really strange look on his face. She called it primal. And she said his eyes turned black. And this is significant because if you've ever read anything, well, I have about two of the ones that come to my mind are Ted Bundy and... John Gacy and a couple people who I guess must have been survivors of them like he went to attack them and he and or those guys went to victimize these people and somehow they survived they said that their eyes turned black and both of those dudes had blue eyes so I assume that means that their pupils got really big and there definitely is something to that. I'm not sure what. I mean, I know that your pupils dilate 
when you look at something you like or you're happy or excited. So, I mean, it's it's something to do with your brain. So, I'm thinking that it, it's some kind of reaction that when they're in this, and when I say they, I mean psychopaths or serial killers in this, like, killer mode, if you want to call it that, they're aroused. Their, their brain is, like, turned on and it puts their body in a state of arousal, you know, for, back, for lack of a better word. And at one point, he told her that he realizes he's a sadist. And he told her a little story about one time he was in school. I don't know how old he was. But there was some boy in his class who was being annoying. And Paris was having fantasies about stabbing this boy in the neck with his pencil and watching him bleed out about how cool that would be. And I don't think that's normal. I mean, I, I've, I, I think we all have had somebody like do something bad to us and you have a, not a serious fantasy about like, I don't know, hurting them. I think everybody does that to it, an extent. I don't know where you draw the line between a psychopath having such fantasies and a normal person having such thoughts. I, I don't know. And another time, this was when Charity learned about the thing with the semen being found. Oh my God, can you imagine hearing that? So needless to say, she wasn't real pleased with that. So she, she confronted him about that. She's like, what is that all about? And he got this, turned into like the Hulk. And he, his face got all red and he, they were in like a visiting room where, you know, you sit at a table. He slammed the table into her and pinned her to the wall. Then he pulled the table back and did it again, slammed into her again. By this time, the guards ran in and it took two guards to restrain him. And all the while, he's kicking and screaming at them that he's going to kill their kids. And Charity said that at that time, I saw the person who killed Ella. And if you would go to see him now, I, I've seen interviews with him now. You can't sit at a table with him now. He's behind glass, kind of like an animal at the zoo. Well, they don't even do that at the zoo anymore. But you have to sit there and he's behind this big like glass wall, because that's how dangerous he is. And another time she said to him, why didn't you just kill me? And he said, quote, God damn it, mom, just get over it already. It's been almost two years already. People die all the time. Okay. Um, yeah. And he admitted at one point that he'd been looking at, uh, like S&M porn since he was nine, nine. I don't even know how he found that or where he found that or where he heard of that. But one thing that's very obvious, and I'm going to talk about this later, is that at some point in his life, somehow, for some reason, his brain learned to associate sex and violence. And that turns somebody into a sexual psychopath, which are extremely dangerous. And another time she asked him why you know, killed a sister. She always wanted, I mean, of course, you just want to know why, why? And she kept asking him and he would give different answers. He said, well, I always wanted to know what it was like to kill somebody. And she said, well, I mean, not that this is good, but 
why don't you kill one of our cats? And he said, I would never do that. I love our cats. And she's just like, okay, whatever. So um, we're going to break now. And when we come back, we're going to finish talking about um, the conversations that Paris has with various people. They're pretty interesting. And what happens to charity. And, of course, the psychology. And there's a lot to cover there. And um, it will continue to be disturbing. I mean, this whole... You have a, a kid who killed and molested his little sister. So, this whole thing is disturbing. So, it's just all one huge trigger warning. And with that said, and this on a little cute note, I came in here to record. And this is where Leo is, my little pig. And he was in his pig glue, his plastic thing. Rodents are always hiding in things. He likes to, he's always in his pig glue. And he has these little piggy pretzels, little treats. And I said, Leo, do you want a piggy treat? And he, he said, wee, wee, wee. And he came out of his pig glue and it was so cute. So I, I gave him three pretzels and he was munching them. And um, that's our, our little bit of cuteness for today. And Nathan's in there snoring. That's cute, too. Better than working. Okay. I will see you back in the classroom in a little bit.